Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, but we will. Uh, and there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty, Plenty Questions. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you not listen to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Hang on. I'm not ready yet. Let me just check. There's one. There's the other one. Oh, I'm not going to die. Fucking yes. Hey, <laughs> up you pop crazy youngsters. And welcome to part two of episode 51 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham. And I'm telling you now, if you have loins, prepare to gird them. Because this is the longest episode of Chart Music by a good hour. So I'm going to dispense with all the fripperies and just say, All right then, Pop Craig's youngsters, it is time to get stuck into March the 20th, 1975. Always remember, we may code down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. And welcome to Top of the Pops. Your host for this episode is Tony Blackburn, <laughs> who is currently in the 9 to 12 weekday slot on Radio 1, where he's been since June of 1973, when he replaced Jimmy Young, and would stay until November of 1977, when he was usurped by Simon Bates. However, his star remains undimmed. Earlier this year, he signed a new contract keeping him at the BBC for the next five years for a reported, according to the newspapers, £80,000. Over £676,000 today. Mm. Tom Torner, the MP for Bradford South, wrote a letter to the Employment Secretary of the time, Michael Foote, which read, This plainly flouts the social contract. It is ludicrous to talk of curbing wage increases when someone who is not worth that much to the community compared with workers who operate vital industrial processes can apparently earn this kind of money. It makes my blood 
Boyle. <laughs> Tony Blackburn, not a key worker. That's a controversial theory to advance in early 1975. I'll wager. Yeah, I think so. He felt pretty key to me at the time. But then mm. again, it was whoever, whomsoever was in that slot, really. You know? So as long as somebody was kind of gassing slickly away, I didn't really mind too much at that point about who they were. I became a little bit more discerning, I suppose, about Tony Blackburn when, in, when I was about 15 or 16 and realised that... Um, he represented um, the superficiality and banality um, to which the common man was all too prone. You know, yeah. In this episode throughout, he comes across, and we've complained in the past about people like Noel Edmonds and David Lee Travis with their hideous non sequitur, non jokes, you know, that these remarks that they kind of spit out that have the kind of contours of like quips or jokes but have absolutely no point to them. I mean, Tony Blackman does one or two things like that, but by and large, his links, there's almost a kind of Pooter-esque quality to them. Oh, yes. He does that kind of slick burble of his. Um, but there's something... I mean, I know, in, in the end, I think people eventually, when they contemplate Tony Blackburn or whatever, there's, there's, there's plenty to take the rise out of, but mm. um, end up sort of half quite liking him, really. John Peel went through a process like that. I mean, John Peel regarded him as, like, you know, supposedly the, sort of the devil incarnate or whatever, and yes. sort of antithetical to him within the whole scheme of BBC and refused to call him Tony Blackburn. He called him Tony Bannockburn, you know. Which, but then in the end, he said, actually, I quite like the bloke. He seems to have a bit of a sense of irony. And, I mean, Tony Blackburn was genuinely... Soul enthusiast, um, you know, he, you know, he, he did have a record player, he did have a record collection, um, he did like music. Mm. He didn't really have a particularly kind of critically refined attitude towards pop the charts, but he genuinely loved his his soul and his R&B, you know, quite obscure stuff. Um, mm. So I interviewed him <laughs> in 1986. Ooh. It was one of my very first assignments uh, for Melody Maker. Fucking hell. Um, yeah, and um, I, what I did, I, I just proposed a sort of series of interviews in which I interviewed various people. I interviewed Andy Kershaw. Um, I interviewed uh, John Peel, in fact. Um, Fucking hell. Jan- Janice Long, Mark Ellen, and I interviewed Tony Blackburn. And it was, yeah, it was, it was quite the experience. I mean, I've got, I've got the piece with me, and um, oh, plump up the cushions, pop crazy youngsters. I can't make head or tail of like a lot of what I'm actually saying myself. I mean, I was always, <laughs> it was always very much about the precise position of the sort of dialectical process of criticism at that time, and so everything was weighted, you know, for that specific week of 1986. Let alone so. A lot of that just didn't even make sense to me, and I'm surprised it didn't get knocked back, you know, and say, look, David, I don't really know what you're talking about here, but that never happened. The policy at Melody <laughs> no, Maker was to no, publish everything, yeah. then take the piss out of people for writing it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, at the end, I said, you know, is, is the only vegetarian I know that's made love to over 250 women. Um, and there's always that kind of <laughs> mixture with him of, like, sex, sexism as well, and, you know, or a kind of Tony Blackburn, sort of almost like harmless sexism in a way. And such genuine idealism. I mean, one of the things he was um, campaigning on at the time was um, against the sun. He was um, objective right. essentially. Why are there no black women on page three? Oh, that was this. You know, he's kind of. Um, oh, come on now, Tone. All tits matter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, his, yeah, his biography, autobiography, Poptastic: My Life in Radio. Um, with a foreword written and read by Noel Edmonds. What I did at a beautiful woman from Barbados, I noticed that it didn't go down too well with some of the black guys at the soul concerts, and that saddened me. My attitude was quite the opposite. When I was doing the Sex and Soul show, I proposed that we initiated a national banging day (laughs) where everyone slept with someone of a different nationality. If only we'd all taken that seriously... 
It would hasten the day when, as the song put it, the world would be one big melting pot. <laughs> <laughs> and as racism would be consigned to the yellowing pages of history. Strange, strange old geezer. You're listening, America. This is what you should be doing. That's what we should do, is force Donald Trump to have sex with Beyonce. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I did actually sort of put into them, perhaps that his attitudes were a touch re- unreconstructed regarding the women folk and all that. And um, um, he, he was talking about, you know, like, he didn't understand, like, weather reports. I mean, you know, this is why I wanted regional, just local radio, a break with the BBC, in effect, because, you know, what interest is it to a person in Aberdeen, what the weather's like in Piccadilly, mm. London Piccadilly? It's aspirational. <laughs> he had his own, own alternative weather report, and he said, we'll do the nipple test. Thrust your breasts out of the window, <laughs> and if the nipples are erect, then presumably it's chilly. <laughs> and he kind of gurgles with guffaw, and I, I, I kind of stare at him appalled. And he looks at me and says, I'm sorry, do you find that outrageous? Oh, man. <laughs> I find that crap. Because <laughs> it, it was weird. Tony Blackburn in the 80s, he, 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 he did a sex, didn't he? Mm. I mean, unfortunately, because I was outside of London, I never got to hear it. Mm. But, you know, you'd read in the newspapers, like, oh, Tony Blackburn's saying all this sex stuff and everything. It's like, oh, man, really? <laughs> yeah. Just picture just wearing only his slip-on shoes over those nylon socks. <laughs> mm. He was genuinely serious, though, about kind of, you know, black culture, black media representation. There was a great show called The Black and White Media Show in um, that came out about 1985, 1986. And I'd seen it recently, and it was pretty much a state-of-the-art analysis of that time, you know, of... Um, the state of play about the way that like black people represented, and, you know, we were able to have a confidence. He'd seen it, yeah, and you, you know, he, he was he was well over all, all of that. You know, it wasn't sort of tokenism. It was something that he was sincere about in the way that he was sincere about, you know, his, his love of soul music. It was very strange. We, I mean, it was only a short feature; it was about six, seven hundred words in the end. But um, we talked for ninety minutes. And like, you know, the, 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 the tape had come to an end, click, and that's a nice kind of way, okay, so we can sort of wrap up there, you know. <laughs> you know, the first 35 minutes had everything, basically. He said, no, no, don't worry, I've got an to set upstairs. And he, you know, so I'm sitting, oh, fuck. He goes upstairs and comes back with another C90, unwraps it, you know, and puts it in the machine so we can wow. talk some more. And like, oh, Christ, you know, the, uh, the light Fucking is fading hell. outside. <laughs> and it's like, I didn't get home till 8.30. <laughs> there was something fundamentally likable about Tony Blackburn for all his uh, yeah. Bodies. I always I always thought he, he he's very much a twat, not yes. to come. Yes, yes, I think um, so. Yeah, but I mean, I I I don't know. I soured to him a little bit mm-hmm. lately because I watched uh, an episode of the completely forgotten low budget TVS chat show Regrets. Mm. Yes, from nineteen eighty five. Where Tony has to face John Stapleton, Ooh. the lizard-necked, oldham-born <laughs> Torquemada of late twentieth-century <laughs> daytime television, and it is—it's fascinating viewing, but it doesn't make you like Tony Blackburn more than you did before you watched it. Mm. Right? Like it's one of the most interesting things about Tony Blackburn for me, and there's there's a lot of them. But one of the most interesting things has always been the bizarre seriousness with which everyone, especially him, treats the breakup of his relationship with Tessa White. Yes. Oh, I remember, I remember listening to that. I remember that, that, that grim morning. It was... Um, oh, you heard that? I did, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, did, yeah, I had it on, yes. It was just wow. this you know, intermittent lacrimosity. It was oh, very strange, very depressing, you know, distressing, really. I remember reading that, um, that Paul Gambaccini was in the bath listening to Radio 1 when that happened, and he d- basically just 
ended up standing bolt upright in his bath, shouting at Tony Blackburn to <laughs> shut up on the radio. <laughs> no, no, it, it just felt like somebody experienced a private apocalypse, you know, their own sort of yeah. emotional 9-11. It was... Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, John Stapleton raises the subject like he's bringing the conversation around someone's missing daughter. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like he's all grave and gentle-voiced. Um, and it's hilarious. And I don't understand why why Tony Blackburn was indulged like this. I just don't. It's like, I, mean, I, was, I, was, I was banging that posh bird off Robin's nest and now I'm not. Pray for me. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, we all know the stories about this. It's, but he spent the next 10 years casting himself as the tortured, bereft lover. Yeah. You know, like a mythological figure. Um, so that's always, I thought, well, okay, you know, poor old Tony. But he reveals on this programme that he fucked this up in the first mm. place by copping off with someone yeah. else. Yeah. That's why she left him. Um, and so, you know, you can be regretful and heartbroken, but don't expect a national outpour and a sympathy no, exactly. for your ten-a-penny broken marriage, yeah. you, know, you carbon fiber head Babs Windsor disappointment. <laughs> I mean, he could just have kept it in his flares. Yeah. It yes. would all have been fine. But the thing is, right, hang on. He says in this program, and I quote, Ooh. We moved to a place called Cookham, and next door... I quite like Oriental people, you see. And next door was a very gorgeous Oriental person. And I quite literally fell in love. Which seems like a bit of a weird and slightly impersonal way to talk about someone you love. Do you know what I mean? It's like he's expecting a music cue. Like, gong. But he says, and I quote, Nothing in a marriage is one person's fault. And I think probably... I think possibly Tessa should have tried a bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking bitch. Who she thinks she was. It's like, Jesus Christ, Tessa, what do you want from me? She was Oriental, don't you understand? Yes. <laughs> oriental. They're like sex robots that cook. I'm only human. It's very weird and sort of, you know. So he goes on to give his dirty laundry a, another good old public airing. Mm. Um, and he's still clearly determined to elicit sympathy from the British public yeah. who, you know, by this point are firmly on board with the lads who used to gather down the front of the stage at the Radio 1 Roadshow chanting, Robin's Nest, Robin's Nest. <laughs> Robin's. And he's just sat there chuckling, uh, talking to John Staples and, oh, yeah, no, it was terrible. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, Tony, mate, I've driven away more beautiful women than a Swedish undertaker. And you're not special. You're not special. You fucked off the love of your life once nine years ago. Hmm. Okay, great. Now let's hear the new one from the Wombles, you cunt. <laughs> Nobody cares. Just do your job. Nobody yes. cares. He's just blatantly obvious that he's just trying to lure in some sweet-minded, sympathetic idiot, you know, to build a country home with so he can cheat on them with another gorgeous oriental person mm. Mm. hopefully next time it's that woman out of audition 
Well, at this moment in time, he's uh, he's he's all over the media. I mean, it's the the row about his salary. Mm. It wasn't as much as eighty thousand, but you know, it was still a, a decent watch. Mm. He's running his own kind of like PR campaign at the minute. Earlier this month, he was in the Sunday People with the headline "Why I'm Backing the Kids' Crusade" by Tony Blackburn. Mm. They're not going off to Arabia or anything. <laughs> it's uh, it's a big petition mm. against um, making beagles smoke. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a, there's a photo of him and Tessa Wyatt delivering the petition mm. to the ICI building. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And him and Tessa, they're also the guest judges at uh, a, a competition run by Deckel for two babies to appear on the bottle over the course of the next year. And apparently Tessa said that some of the babies were too bandy-legged or fat. <laughs> <laughs> What better judge of baby beauty than Tony Blackburn? It, it, funny, there's just a couple yeah. more extracts, if you don't want to read from his um, autobiography. Oh, come on, give um, it there's one, yeah, so, I mean, You talk about the warmers, yeah. And it's, it's, um, here's one from, obviously, that era. It says, it's a pity Peel wasn't travelling on the train from Liverpool to London the day Mike Bad and I were making our way back from a Radio 1 personal appearance. As we left, I said to Mike, do you know what? I fancy having a bit of a womble. He knew exactly what it meant. <laughs> well, go on then, pop it on, he urged. And for the entire journey, I sat in a first-class compartment, dressed head-to-toe in a Wombles outfit. It felt great. And we had the carriage to ourselves <laughs> all the way back home. Yeah, so that's uh, one. And yes, and you were talking about uh, the, yeah, the children, um, the children's crusade is... Is one appertaining to a children in need event. Um, so I won't, uh, the reveal as to who he's talking about, you know, will come. So anyway, uh, who he's talking about here comes later. It says, um, so some years later, I had him on a guest on my Radio 1 children's show, and he came in blind drunk wearing a sailor's cap. Later still, at a children in need event, he was doing the old act, yelling, come on, come on, at the top of his failing voice. Ooh, by the end of the show... on a postcard. <laughs> by the end of the show, he was in a dreadful state, perspiring badly and needing to be helped into a chair. Of course, that was nothing compared to the tattered state of his reputation now. None of us had any idea what he was up to. I met his son once, and even he told me his dad was a bit weird. I don't think we'll ever be seeing Gary Glitter on a stage again, let alone at another Children in Need concert. <laughs> oh, I thought it was Richard O'Sullivan. <laughs> yeah. He's already made two appearances on television this week. Mm. He was the celebrity guest on ATV's The Golden Shot last Sunday. Probably had his head turned by Wei Wei Wong. <laughs> there was another appearance on a TV show that we'll discuss later. But before that, chaps, I'd like to take you back just a few months to September of 1974 and a series in the Sunday Mirror called The DJ Kings, which led off with a piece on Blackburn. It reads as follows. Even middle-aged mums and dads who believe that everyone in pop is a no-good drunken rapist would let their daughters marry Tony Blackburn if he was single. Just look at him, they say. He's nicely spoken. You never hear him swear. He always washes behind his ears and his hair is hardly long at all. But he's not really as white as driven snow. Furthermore, he's pleased to admit it. He told me, A brush with pot appeared when I went to an audition once. Someone handed me a reefer and I thought, Here goes but I only smoked half of it and got violently sick. That was enough for me. (laughs) I suppose most people have seen a couple of blue films in their lives. (laughs) I saw the Linda Lovelace film Deep Throat, for example. 
Frankly, I find them totally boring. But I think porn should be available for people who want it. Although I wouldn't want to see it in shop windows. <laughs> Fucking hell, can you imagine getting caned and watching porn with Tony Blackburn? <laughs> I, th- I think I'd announce my retirement from life after that, because there'd be nothing more to achieve. He's there alternately throwing up and yawning. Yes. <laughs> of course, I find all this terribly boring. Listening to him on the radio is rather like chewing your way through a giant box of soft-scented chocolates. You might find it a bit sugary, but you won't break your teeth. Okay, that's the worst analogy I've ever heard. Mm. Right? Is that they started off saying, okay, it's sort of sugary, sickly. All right, this radio show, it's like eating a massive box of, of sickly chocolates. Okay, go on, complete that. Yeah. All right, yeah, you may find it a bit sickly, but you won't break your teeth. Mm. Oh, right, okay. Like, well, as, yeah, as opposed to, like, the, the Jimmy Young show, where it's, oh, fuck, one of my molars has gone. Yeah. <laughs> fuck? It doesn't mean anything. Being an open man, he won't argue with that. Of course I talk a lot of nonsense. It's difficult to do anything else but chatter on inanely. I'm sneered at by some people. I'm called plastic. Okay, so what do they want me to do? I'm not a drug addict. I don't get drunk. I don't go around knocking old ladies on the head. It (laughs) sickens me when I read about groups like The Who smashing up hotel rooms for fun. If that's the kind of thing I have to do to stop these people calling me plastic, then thank you very much. Mm. I'll stay plastic. Stay plastic, Tony. So, yeah, Tony Blackburn, no granny basher he. So it's, it's so weird, isn't it? Just such a tiny, tiny rearrangement of DNA, mm. and you get Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tony, in a green, black and white, stripy, flowery shirt with condor collars under a black blazer with gold buttons, welcomes us to Top of the Pops and immediately whips us into the Top 30 rundown to the sound of Whole Lot of Love by the Top of the Pops Orchestra. And, as always, Always in this era of Top of the Pops. Ooh, the picture selections are choice, aren't they, chaps? Mm, yeah. What have you got? Uh, Shirley and Company. Yes. The, the company being one man. Yes. Who looks like a mad dentist. Mm. Uh, Super Tramp, living yeah. up to at least 50% of their name. <laughs> uh, Mud, uh, the cue for the audition for the Never Go With Strangers advert. Yes. Um, <laughs> Oh, and Frankie Valley, who looks like he's been surprised while robbing a post box. <laughs> uh, and the Osmonds, of course. Oh, like, the Osmonds uh, as pimps at the Salt Lake City Hustlers Convention. Yeah, they look like hip-hop yeah. plantation owners. Yeah. Bitch better have my tithe. <laughs> I was puzzled by the Elton John band. Yeah, for Philadelphia Freedom. Like they're all sat around in the kitchen and uh, Elton goes, what should we call the band? Elton goes, well, I've got an idea. Yeah. Elton John banned from doing adverts for Cadbury's <laughs> after that Sun article that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got I've got Wigan's ovation in massive Saxons looking like a picket line for the National Union of Agro. <laughs> um, Noddy Holder and Dave Hill is less convincing pimps than the Osmonds. Mm. Someone in the Elton John band has their face obscured completely by the number 20. Mm. And uh, yet yeah, the reuse of the beakiest photo ever taken of Barry Manilow. 
Yeah. You know, it's the kind of picture that you'd private message your mate to untag you from mm. on Facebook. <laughs> and the moments who are lying about all bare-chested, uh, but they've got expressions that dare you to question their sexuality. Yeah. yeah. This is what's... I think there's a general theme here, actually, is that, like, you know, in this kind of post-glam era, it's like the makeup is melting away. Mm whatever you know there's a sort of distinct lack of effeteness you know despite this kind of hangover of like you know um women's clothing and uh you know accessories and what have you mm. Not a hint of an introduction, we pile straight into a close-up of a piano being mashed as the camera pans back to reveal the first act of the night, Kenny with Fancy Pants. Formed in Enfield by Chris Pringle, who was working in a local banana warehouse in 1971, Chuff were a prog band who did the festival circuit of the early 70s and supported Hawkwind and the Edgar Broughton band. In 1974, after a gig at Middlesex Poly supporting the Trogs, they were approached by the Starlight Agency, who were looking for a group to work with Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, who wrote Shang and Lang, Remember, Summer Love Sensation and Saturday Night for the Bay City Rollers before Tam Payton fell out with them. Coulter and Martin had already had two top 40 hits in 1973 under the name of Kenny. The stage name Rack Records had given to the Irish show band singer Tony Kenny. But after he returned to Ireland, they gave it to the new band, immediately sacked Pringle and offered the role to a 17-year-old actor called Keith Chegwin, who turned it down. So at extreme short notice, the job was given to one of their mates, Rick Driscoll. The reason for the short notice was because their debut single, a cover of the B-side to All of Me Loves All of You by the Bay City Rollers, had already been recorded by session musicians who had done all the roller stuff up until this year and was already in the shops with a picture sleeve featuring Tony Kenny's face on it. And after the new band made an appearance on Top of the Pops, wearing white t-shirts with a Kellogg Special K logo on them, it shot up to number three in December of 1974. This is the follow-up, which actually features them this time. It entered the chart at number 36 two weeks ago, and this week it shot up from number 19 to number 8. Well, chaps, if there is a theme to this episode, and, you know, there's quite a few, Mm. there's a lot of murkiness and fakery going on in this episode of Top of the Pops, but the main thread that runs through this is, is the cult of teeny bopperism and a rush to assemble a British reaction to David Cassidy and the Osmonds. And, you know, it's taken them a couple of years, but it's starting to happen, isn't yeah, it? But- and at this moment in time, Kenny seemed to be well-placed to fill the void with this, their first proper single. Yeah, but the problem with Kenny is that it, Kenny is not so much a band name as an adjective. <laughs> um, yes. This is, a, yes. this is a group without a focal point in terms of personal charisma. 
Um, mm. And someone should have told them that they can't substitute that with those multicolored Harlequin trousers, like no. you know, like a paint set with a lid up. Or you know, it's like if, if you asked a six-year-old to design a snazzy pair of trousers, yes. you know, they hinder more than help. Yeah, I mean, they're all wearing white shirts with the red K based on the special K logo, and uh, the band are currently in a legal row with Kellogg's over it, uh, and they have been for the past four months. Yeah, who would have thought it? Oh, absolutely. If I was Mr. Kellogg, I would have... Yeah. Although it is, it is a, a foreshadowing of the... Uh, I think it was around Acid House time, wasn't it, that that mm. deternment of... Uh, if corporate logos became a trendy yes. thing to do, they they were ahead of the times in at least in at least one area. The bump, did you partake? My mates down the village hall disco would not have touched arse like that. It, no, it was just not no. happened. And there was no, and, and none of the girls that um, we were in the proximity of would have consented to uh, to any of that either. So. Um, yeah, I always felt that that was always a bit of a non-starter. But no. but you know, you mentioned you mentioned the flares, or whatever. But when I was twelve, you could forget the rest of the song. You got me at the flares. I would love that they they represented the progress of mankind, basically. You know, the flares <laughs> like that, wider, more colourful, more adventurous. More, you know, it's like if, if Jimi Hendrix. You know, you look at his strides. You know, yeah, trousers signified progress, and you know, we're just going to get up and up and further and farther away. I mean, I would have seen those trousers and been infused with a sense of optimism and the approach of the kind of glorious sunlit uplands. Yeah. I perhaps sort of place too much store in trousers, but, you know, obviously when trousers tapered, you know, in the punk year or whatever, it was, you know, mm. it was the idea that, like, you know, tapering the excess of the 70s and the folly of yeah. all those ideas of progress, etc., yeah. etc. Et because there's some massive fucking swingerlingers in this episode, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kenny's are quite restrained. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's strange. They're, they're throwing everything at the kitchen sink at the whole thing, aren't they? And you've got the um, very unlikely baritone thing. You've got the synchronised mud-type attack and retreat or whatever. You know, yeah. there's this sense of sort of tremendous excitement for excitement's sake, you know, kind of slightly opt- opportunistic, really. Like you say, you know, just attempting to kind of um, make enough or the right kind of bright noise to um, propel them onto that kind of Osmond stroke Cassidy stroke Basie to Roller um, stratosphere. Mm. Yeah, the tr- the trouble is they've just, they've kind of got nothing. I mean, this mm. song, I mean, it's, as you say, it's written by, what, Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, the shaking chinner chap, right? Mm. <laughs> and it's what befits them. It's like a gelded suite. It's mm. like the most generic sort of good time glam or bad time glam, you know, with all the sex removed. Yeah. Even the possibility yeah. of sex removed just to be on the safe side, you know. And it is mm. very much on the safe side. And it's not horrible it's just not useful. You can't draw anything from it. It doesn't make you feel or think. It's just a vehicle for that 70s dancing where you put your hands on your hips and lean right over to one side and then the other yeah. and then back and forth. Yeah, the mud rocker. Thumbs in belt loops. Yes. I'm a, I'm a connoisseur of what people consider trashy pop records, you know, and the basic rule is they have to pass one of three tests. Either they have to have some sort of powerful emotion concealed under the flash or they have to be funny or at least fun or they have to provide some sort of blunt stimulant effect and this doesn't really pass any of those Mm. tests it's just a Mm. it's just a youth club knees up in it but grown old like there is no youth club now and so pretty soon there won't be any knees it's just an object it's just (laughs) an object it's it's just sort of use it doesn't even have that sleek artificial sound world of the bump Mm. 
you know it's just it's all granny piano in it and arthritic jazz yeah. hands it's, yeah, yeah 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 i watched everything very close at this time and it says something i don't even recall this track you know I, yes. I, you know, I recall i remember the bump but i don't remember this at all and i was watching pretty closely so it must have you know to have, for it to have evaporated from my memory um is a pretty is a pretty sorry indictment it has to be said i always got confused with kenny because do you remember the credits to um minder you know, the, the music, you know, like, you oh, know, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. and when it says like music by Kenny, and I thought mm-hmm. that like, you know, come 79, they did rather kind of cannily like adapted with the times, you know, sort of mid style. And now, you know, they completely, yeah. but I think it's, it's another Kenny, isn't it? Yeah, it's just someone with the surname Kenny. That was Gerard Kenny, who did, you know, New York, New York, so good they named it twice. I thought that for years that this was Kenny. Yeah, I thought that until about 2004, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Just vaguely assumed it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this song, you get the feeling that it's been passed round and knocked back by the likes of the Glitter Band and Mud and the Roubettes. Mm. Yeah. For being a bit too generic. Yeah. It's like when Kylie did Sexercise and mm. you think, you didn't have first dibs on this song, did you? It's it's empty excitement, and there's a lot of it tonight, actually. You said that no one's standing up, but I do recall uh, Jan Stiles, the guitarist, was uh, was pushed to the forefront in the uh, in the teeny mags. Mm. But but you you just look at him, you just think, well, who'd fancy you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, the the problem they've got is that they're a very image orientated band who are mm. visually bland and forgettable, mm. right? So, like, like Rick Driscoll, for a start, the singer, is yeah. one of those unfortunate 70s men uh, with a small face because his face is too small for all that hair. And it's, there's yes. no way around it. It's like, you know the bass player who does the fake bass vocal bit? He was born mm. to sport that curly black mop, right? If he was around now, he'd still have the same haircut because he's got those big, yeah. dark features, you know, like... Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Um, But Driscoll has got this small, bland, weak tea English face, you know, like uh, Nick Clegg or uh, Phil Neal, right? And he feels the cultural pressure to grow out his mousy fair hair into that, you know, long, pointy-topped, 70s hairstyle like the frame of a cathedral door you know and in the middle it's just this face that could commit a murder in broad daylight and never be picked out of an identity parade and it's just sheer volume of the hair flat and lifeless as it is overwhelms his little boy features he looks sort of top heavy just makes him look even more feeble and uncharismatic and also no man whose face is shaped like an icicle should be further elongating it with a cranial hair cone. Mm. It's just mm. common sense. Because he's very long-faced with a pointy mm. chin. He's like a, a bland B.A. Robertson. You know these people with faces shaped like the club badge of Universidad Catalica, the Chilean footballer. <laughs> it's just an extension of the rule that small men should not have big mm. hair. Like, like which Kevin mm. Keegan most notably fell foul of, right? You can't yes. have a haircut that's bigger than you are, especially not if the face in the middle belongs to an apprentice fruiterer. Mm. It's just it 
tears away whatever <laughs> dignity you've I mean, left trousers apart there is something kind of commonplace i mean in my notes i just put ipswich town back four i mean they've got that kind of you know that air, yeah. that air of them people you know footballers are looking like that at this point or whatever and again it's almost like that kind of veneer of effeteness mm. and that veneer of like you know androgyny is it's, it's all kind of melting away and like yeah yeah the kind of mediocre geezers beneath are kind of beginning to sort of come through yeah. shine through and it's not even Ipswich Town back four. It's Ipswich Town's fullbacks and the two reserve fullbacks. Yeah, yes, they don't even yeah. have the char- the battered, characterful faces of a central defender. They're a band with no Donnies, but they haven't even got a Merrill. Yeah, and that kind of thing matters in yeah. 1975. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's funny looking at the audience. There's there's that girl at the front who keeps looking back at the camera very furtively, and she's clutching yes. a little tartan scarf, and it's like we all know who you're here for. Yes, <laughs> you know, and it's almost like even if she shows the sort of slight his modern enthusiasm to Kenny that uh, she might get grassed up. Yes. Uh, you know, if you look closely, the drummer has got a little voodoo doll of Rick Driscoll hanging from his drum. Yeah, I mean what one thing in the favour of the, the keyboard player, he's once again, as is the style, he's got his keyboard down way too long. But <laughs> yeah. he's adopted a kind of a striding stance <laughs> as if he's doing warm ups, you know, for his groin. <laughs> And he's keeping his back straight. And I approved of that. Mm. That's all that's going in the favour column for Kenny, mm. I'm afraid. Mm. And of course, you know, with the, with the Kellogg's thing, they've got to be very careful how they organise themselves on stage. Because if, if there's a camera shot with just three of them in, then they're, they're promoting the Ku Klux Klan, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, the one thing you can say for Rick Driscoll, Right, you would expect him to look horrific nowadays because he's got that kind of face where it's just an arrangement of vague suggestions with no definition, right? No bone structure. He's just a sort of butter sculpture. So mm. generally that ages incredibly badly and he looks like the kind of bloke who by the time he's 40 is going to look like a, a half-used candle, you know. But in fact, I found him on Facebook and fair play, sure. he's now got that sort of older dude, sort of David St. Hubbins hair and dark glasses mm. and a high contrast black and white picture to minimise nature's damage and he looks every inch the comfortably faded British rocker he's got a face like an old pair of jeans you know what I mean, so good for him Um, I did notice he doesn't seem to post much on Facebook his, wait a minute his last public post is from December 2015 complaining about Richmond Council's S3 parking zone Um, Mm. but before that there's a post from him in (laughs) In 2012, to the group, I love 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s music slash videos, which reads, uh, <laughs> Hi all. A broad church. Yeah. He says, Hi all, I am Rick Driscoll, lead singer with the 70s group Kenny. In the summer, I run sailing holidays in Corfu, Greece. If anyone would like to join me in 2013 and have a sailing holiday with a genuine 70s pop star, contact me. (laughs) Now, that post has one like and no replies. But Mm. I would say it's not a bad late-life trade-off, right? Because you get to sail around Corfu all summer and you get the money to pay for it and you just have to listen to some exploded boomer on the starboard side, going, oh, where'd you get the name Kenny? You know what I mean? Like, who's our dudes in the trousers? 
Did you ever meet that, Jimmy Savile? What was he like? Oh you know, but it's, but it's <laughs> that would be me. I would be just like that. <laughs> yeah, so would I. But what else are you going to ask you? But you know, he's Rick yeah. Driscoll. He can't have no boss. He's ungovernable. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> can you can you imagine him trying to fit into the workaday world? Can you imagine it, Driscoll? Yes. <laughs> again. No, he has to follow his soul, man. <laughs> and yeah. in all honesty, it's a better way to live. And I hope that his boat business, if it still exists, uh, doesn't mm. suffer too badly this summer. Yes, yeah. That's a rather poignant story. It's sort of like Redden and old Don Estelle in Gunner Sudden outfit trying to sell his CDs in Lewisham shopping mall with um, <laughs> total indifference, yeah, as he was, as his want towards the end of his life. It's one of the saddest sights I ever saw. Even the trees didn't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Fancy Pants jumped two places to number six, and the week after that, it got to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, Baby I Love You Okay, got to number 12 in June of this year, but they close out 1975 with Julianne getting to number 10 in August. But their debut LP, The Sound of Super K, only got to number 56 in the album charts, and Coulter and Martin switched their attention to Slick, who were given forever and ever from Kenny's LP, and took it to number one in January of 1976. A few months later, Kenny went to court to sever their ties with Coulter and Martin and signed a new deal with Polydor, but they never had a hit in the UK again. And after guitarist Jan Style was seriously injured in a car crash, they eventually split up in My name's Jason Fleming. The More Than My Past podcast will see me talking to a wide range of inspiring people. People who have confronted and overcome addiction or imprisonment or both and turned their lives around. I did mad things that was hurting myself and hurting other people. Everybody grows up in a house called normal. Heroin addiction and chaos was my normal. Some people don't understand the word moderation and uh, I was definitely one of those people. The More Than My Past podcast. 
That's Kenny in an number called Fancy Pants. We've got a very, very chirpious night, so I hope you'll be able to stay tuned and watch Top of the Pops. And last time I was here, I was saying that this group were going to be an absolute sensation. And what do you know? Their record at that time wasn't in the charts, but I thought it was going to be a big hit. Must be honest, I didn't think it was going to be quite as big as this, but what do you know? They've gone to number four this week. There's a whole lot of loving, and to sing all about it, here are guys and girls. It's a feeling I'm feeling through and through. Tony, still on his own, thinks that last song was lovely and then tells us we've got a very, very cheer for you tonight. <laughs> so we hope you'll be able to stay tuned and watch Top of the Pops. He knows he's fucked up, but he breezes on, claiming total responsibility for the next single being a hit. But not even him, the Nostradamus of pop, could have predicted it would be this much of a hit. It's There's a Whole Lot of Lovin' by Guys and Dolls. Formed in London via an advert in Melody Maker in 1974, Guys and Dolls were a three-man, three-woman group, which consisted of solo singer Dominic Grant... Paul Griggs, the former lead singer of the prog band Octopus before half the band left to join Mungo Jerry, the actress Teresa Bazaar and three graduates of the Italia Conti Stage School, Martine Howard, Bruce Forsyth's daughter Julia and David Van Day. At their first band meeting, they were given copies of the first single they were going to record. This one, a rewrite of a jingle currently used in an advert for McVitie's Digestive Biscuits that had been demoed by session singers, including Tony Burroughs of Edison Lighthouse and the Pipkins fame, and Claire Torre, who did the screamy bit on Pink Floyd's The Great Gig in the Sky. But when they asked when they were going to record it, they were told that the label were putting out the demo and their job, for now, was to look nice on the telly miming to it. A week before it was released, Tony Blackburn played it on his mid-morning show on Radio 1 and was so taken by it, he decided to play it again at the end of his shift. It entered the top 40 at number 26 two weeks ago and an instant appearance on Top of the Pops kicked it all the way up to number 9. And this week, it's gone up five places to number 4. Well, panel, we are two days away from Eurovision and the shadows are about to die on their arse. And you just look at this and just think, fucking hell, why didn't you go with this one? Were it not for its sinister biscuity connotations, this would have smashed it on the continent, I feel. Yeah, well, it's weird because I, from the title, I didn't think I knew this record. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it came out too early for me to really have any memory of it as a hit. Uh, then when it began, I realised it was more familiar to me than my mother's face. Mm. And it was like, what? And I realised what I remember is the Chocolate Digestives advert. Right, yeah, as sung mm. by the Edison Lighthouse himself. Um, and, uh, yeah, Whaley Lady. And I associate <laughs> this song at a very deep psychological level with two things. Curling up in front of the telly as a preschooler and to- chocolate digestives. Mm. And so for a man in his 40s with pre-diabetes, 
this is quite the double whammy of keening nostalgia. Not that there's any other kind of nostalgia. So that means I can't dislike this song any more than I could dislike the memory of 1970s Kidderminster. And that was a load of crap and all, you know. Um, except that unlike 1970s Kidderminster, this song does have a sort of elementary grandeur to it. Um, and it feels like a warm, inclusive space, also unlike 1970s Kidderminster. <laughs> Even if it only achieves those things through hack work and, you know, lazy solutions. Like, obviously it wants to be, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Yeah. except indoors and uh, with just white people. Um, but, you know, that message of of universal blind hope soaring through the trunk of reality, it seems a bit quaint, you know, mm. in, in our current global predicament. But yes. I, can't, I can't dislike this record. And also, because when you, when you consider the requirements of a commercial, like in both senses, a commercial song... Uh, written to order like this one and the limitations that are placed on anyone writing one this is about as good as it can be realistically expected to get um, and that's not nothing as a piece of middle of the road songwriting uh, this is nice work there's a nice sort of Brian Wilson-ish intro some clever modulations in it um, and the lyrics are, are I mean, it's a, it's a load of faff, you know, but the, the lyrics are very neatly written and very cleverly put together and they scam very well, you know, like richer than a 49, a minor striking lucky. Mm. It's all based on the piano intro to Daydream Believer, isn't mm. it, basically. And it's, uh, but the thing is, they're written by an Englishman and apparently this whole lot of loving going on around the world, it's all in America. Yes. According to this song. I say have a little fucking pride, right? He only mentions American place names. In a song for the English market, what's he doing? Yeah. Also, I have it on good authority that this line, bigger than the Mississippi River near the ocean, uh, is bollocks because the Mississippi actually narrows quite pronouncedly as it nears the ocean. Uh, boy, I bet their faces were red when they found that out. <laughs> no wonder Van Day got pissed off having to sing misleading rubbish like that. Well, obviously, this is a very early sighting of David Van Day, a, a, a very non-blonde David Van Day. But judging by this performance, it's clear that he spent his time literally learning at the feet of a master. Dominic Grant, fucking hell. If they ever did a musical of Thundercats, he'd be fucking nailed on for Lion-O, wouldn't he? What a main of tumbling blonde locks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it, it, it's strange, really, because he does have that kind of... Um, I mean, his name hasn't... Yeah. You know, unless yeah. I've been kind of you know missing a key component of popular culture over these decades, I don't think his name has exactly resounded down the decades. But there, he looks every inch the no. alpha male, doesn't he? Like you say, kind of tall, oh, leonine... God, yes. And the idea that, like, you know, I mean, clearly sort of, you must sort of regard the way that a sort of fifth form would regard a first form, you know, the way you look down on that little squit like David Van Day or whatever, and think, you know, mm. you know, look at you, you little twat, you're going to end up running an ice cream van or something like that, aren't you? you know? You'll be in care homes before too long. <laughs> he does undercut their wholesomeness a little bit because he looks like an untrustworthy man. Right? Do you know what I mean? It's, for a start, he doesn't look human. He'd be the kind of person who'd kind of like sashay into the Crossroads Motel and you'd know. Yeah. 
you know something's oh, yeah. going to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a, a, a steamy plot line was in the offer. Yeah, many, yes. uh, many old widows have signed over their, their money to this. For a start, <laughs> yeah. he, he doesn't look human. He looks like a piece of clip art, right? He look, he, or he looks like the new million-pound playboy yeah. striker set to disrupt team chemistry in yes. one of the black-and-white yeah. strips in Roy the Rovers. Yes. Um, yes. If it had been in, in, in Crossroads, Benny would have had to... Punched him out at some point. I think. Yes. I mean, just occasionally, Benny just showed what a hard bastard he was. And, yes. Uh, yeah, I think that's what. That's I what mean, what I can say definitely. for him, right? Okay, because guys and dolls are considered a group of singers, unlike Kenny. Right? They don't get to mime to the record. They have to sing it live yeah. with the top of the pops orchestra. Now, what's Obviously, the funniest thing there is that as soon as they open their mouths, it's immediately obvious that these are not the people singing on the record. It doesn't sound anything like them. Mm. Uh, but the fact is, this is better. They're better than the people yes. singing on the record. Mm. And the Top of the Pops Orchestra, who are on their best behaviour here, because they're exactly in the zone, in their aren't element, they, for this yeah, one? They sound better than mm. the record, too. Much fresher and yeah. less mushy. And a song like this benefits from a bit of fresh yeah. air. And it's quite early on in the night as well, so the right. booze hasn't kicked in just yet. Precisely, yes. So this is vastly preferable to listening to the record, I have to say. Um, mm. The only problem is that when you see Dominic Grant getting really into this, and you know, when the others are singing, he's doing sort of ad-libs of like, whoa, and stuff like that, because he's, the, he's yes. the boss. Um, the, what lets it down is that he's not coming to this place of pop stardom from a position of fury and resentment, like pop singers should, right? No. You feel like nothing has ever frustrated this man. Um, he looks like mm. he was captain of the football team, you know, went out with the best-looking girl at school. Yeah. All of this to the point where he, yeah. he never had to yeah. worry about being agonisingly cheesy, you know. Or the fact that, in the grand scheme of things, he brings nothing to the table except for a sort of a bland yeah. facial symmetry and a and a and a forty minute grooming regime, you know. It's very undercut with irony, you know. The fact you've got these, you know, like you say, you've got David Van Day and like Theresa Bazaar on either end there, as yes. if they're, you know, like almost like you know, it doesn't matter if you're not in the picture. Don't worry, just bung them on the end. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, David Van Day's off to the side, and, and as we all know from that Bucks Fizz documentary, nobody puts David oh, Van yeah, Day yeah. to the side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, as he said himself, I would go out of my way to make sure people watch me perform well. Mm. I would want everyone to look at me on the stage, mm. and I'm going to show you how to perform. You're going to learn something about charisma and how these things work in a way i suppose there's an equipment like brian eno sort of bridling you know with brian ferry at, at, i was thinking of roxy music while i was watching this as well david yeah just like so. yes definitely <laughs> yeah i mean i i mean i can understand taylor for you know perhaps all slightly kind of proustian type reasons you know liking this i would i would have hated mm. this i mean i do remember at the time i remember having to sit through it and live through it and um um, you know, these precious minutes ticking by of like the, the one half hour or 30 or five, 40 minutes, whatever it is of the week. That for a biscuit like advert. Living. Yeah, exactly. For a biscuit advert. That was yeah. a cod to me. I was outraged it's by poignant that. In, in the world of appetite, you know, I mean, people could find whole worlds in digested biscuits. I mean, it's, um, mm. you know, that's, I, I, I do kind of understand that. I don't think digested biscuits are uh, advertised at all now as such. As, you know, get no. Big sort of like, you know, advertising campaigns, you know, put behind them. I think they're just kind of a given, really. You know, the great era of like 
biscuits actually being advertised um, is clearly long behind us. But yeah. I, did, I wouldn't have understood who this music was for. You know, when yeah. I was when I was twelve, you know, and I was a, a young lad, I demanded substance, thrust, velocity, you know, all those kind of things. You know, music that you could like really put your thumbs and your belt loops mm. in and really kind of go antler to antler with your mates. Yes. And this was like, why do you have to eat your greens or whatever? It's, you know, except that there's nothing remotely nutritious about this. I mean, it was mum music, it was big sister music. It's just, yeah. you know, almost like having to put the brakes on pleasure for a few minutes because otherwise we might get a bit over-aerated. You know? I mean, I remember being outraged by this song because I, I already knew it as the McVitie's advert music. Mm. If I ever heard it on the radio, I'd think, D- don't they know? That's a biscuit advert and they're doing it on... The- that, that's not right. Yeah. Of course, I look back now and go, oh, fucking hell, why weren't all their songs adverts? Yeah. Why didn't they follow this up with, if you like a lot of chocolate on your biscuit, join our club? Mm-hmm. It's interesting, it's perhaps it's a sign of the weakness of pop at this point, that a lot of stuff that's kind of coming into the charts is like stuff from TV, stuff that you're familiar with via yeah. TV, whether it's theme tunes or adverts and things like that. I mean, what else do you have? Right? Especially yes. that, um, what is it, David Dundas around this time, didn't you? Was it with the Brutus Jeans? Yes. Yeah. Lord David Dundas to you, mate. Yeah, and um, and various things, you know, I mean, like I said, the, the Simon Park Orchestra, was it weeks and weeks, you know, the theme yeah. to Van der Valk, you know, and stuff like that. It was just the whistleful stuff that was initially intended for other purposes, for TV or whatever, is now becoming so much of the stuff mm. of pop. But you've got to say that this song is better than Nobody Makes Them Quite Like McVitie's Do. Nobody bakes them like you. <laughs> that was shit. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm listening to you too. No, right. And I do I detect just a little bit of jealousy towards Dominic Grant. Well, I mean, Grant? yeah, clearly obviously <laughs> Dominic Grant is yes. I know I met I met yeah, yeah, so I've stood in the shadow of many a Dominic Grant in my time, yes, and uh Yeah. Flinging a nervous two fingers at him, you know, when he's well out of like, you know. Sorry. I mean, the problem with, with Guys and Dolls is they've only just started up. And they're, they're, a, they're a six-handed monstrosity, but a pecking order has been established. Oh, yes. And the way they're presented, they might as well just be a male-female duo. I mean, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you've got the, like you say, the pecking order, you know, they're on those sort of stairs or whatever with, like, Grant, you know, like the Lion King right at the top, you know. Yes. He's about to hold up his first child to look at the moon or something. It's it's. Um... And he's already about a foot taller than everybody else know, in yeah. the band. He's yes, a real yeah, fancy yeah. giraffe dentist. And he's, he's there on a podium as well. Mm. So, I mean, you know, eventually you can think, like, what does Dominic Grant, you know, as... as Dollar come to sort of like dominate the eighties, you know. Yeah. Dominic Grant's thinking, what happened? Yeah, but yeah. come on, he looks like he's having a fucking great nineteen seventies, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the decade he, he was born to. I mean, he's driving his TR seven to a bistro for some goulash, you know what I mean? And then he's <laughs> going home and watching one of those TVs that's uh, white and spherical, yeah, with his yeah. girlfriend. Uh, in a kimono, in one of those uh, round wicker chairs, dangling from the ceiling <laughs> on a chain, <laughs> nibbling on a rivina. Mm-hmm. He's got a bottle, a bottle of bull's blood, and it's uh, yeah. Then a little later, onto a waterbed that's clear with tropical fish in it. <laughs> it's a fucking success story. This, yeah, he you is. You know, don't don't be a player hater. Be a player celebrator. <laughs> <laughs> it's Paul Griggs. I feel sorry for man. He was in a prog band. A year ago, and now he's doing this. You wouldn't feel sorry for them if you'd heard their version of I Am The Walrus. Oh, really? Which is, yeah, put it this way, it's only slightly better than Russell Brown's version. Oh! I was just reading about Dominic Grant, his eventual fate, and I just sort of went into wiki, and um, they've all got um, Wikipedia entry, individual Wikipedia entry, except Dominic Grant. Really? Well, I can fill you in oh, if you like. okay, yeah. Um, the terrible thing is I went on an eight-hour G&D 
deep dive. <laughs> and now I'm an inadvertent authority on their stupid fucking career. So I look, I'm going to talk about this for fucking ages, all right? Wait till the documentaries start. Yeah. you be fucking rolling in it. Right, first of all, I sat and watched their 1976 TV special, <laughs> which is on YouTube, Ooh. uploaded by Paul yep. Griggs, the, the, the curly-haired... Middle yes. child on the male half of the group. Yeah, the Ian Sludge Lees lookalike. <laughs> yeah, and very much the band historian. He runs the website paulgriggs.com, which yeah. looks like it was built with Yahoo GeoCities. It's got like you know, <laughs> massive link buttons and a star field as the backdrop of the main menu. Uh, and it's got a guest book, which I somehow managed to uh, leave unmolested. Oh, Taylor. I thought if I mentioned it on here, people might go in and think, who's this? Who's just just left a comment that just says says, AIDS, 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 AIDS. (laughs) No. But it's a veritable arc of precious memories, right? And there's Mm. loads of detail about guys, loads of photos, um, including a (laughs) lovely picture from 1980, of the band next to a military plane with the <laughs> caption, at RAF Wildenrath in Germany, guys and dolls get ready to bomb Iraq. <laughs> what? That's what it says. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit baffling. It does give you a clue as to what sort of gigs G&D were playing mm. by this point. Yeah. Um, I also found out from this website that Griggs still writes I wonder if he ever came across Books Fizz with David Van Day and the Falklands. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, it'd be like Falklands War 2. Yes. <laughs> I also found out from this website that, that Griggs still writes and performs to this day, and you can hear a selection of his more recent work there, uh, including Take the Money and Run, a raunchy rocker, which is a bittersweet take on the music business, mm. uh, and the haunting Out of Love. Uh, but look, they're TV special, right? Anyone who's younger than 45 who's looking for a portal into the true reality of <laughs> mid-70s British mainstream entertainment, right? Basically, if you want to understand the true reality of the English mid-70s, first watch the clip that's on YouTube from Wish You Were Here in 1974 about holiday camps in Hailing Island. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And then oh. watch the 1976 Guys and Dolls mm. TV special. It's it's instructive, fascinating, and chilling. Mm. Right, it's the mm. one year on from here, so they all look one year older and one year weirder. Like Dominic's hair is now, you know, a full <laughs> white stallion mane, really upsetting. Mm. And it it turns out his normal singing voice is actually the most accurate impression of the young Scott Walker you'll ever here wow it's remarkable in fact he's got two voices one is scott walker if his soul fell out the end of his cog mm. and the other one <laughs> is is neil diamond broken on a wheel mm. and he sort of goes mm. back and forth between those two and all sorts of stuff happens in this grig straps on a, an unplugged guitar like andrew ridgely to show that he's a real musician <laughs> but the highlight comes where look you get to see a little a little glimpse into band politics here Right, where David and Therese are sort of uh, not quite content to be junior partners anymore, as you (laughs) can imagine. Yeah, it's like a mate of mine who watched this uh, with me by the wonders of modern technology pointed out that it looks as if their part in this company 
is rather like that of Barry and Yvonne in Heidi High. Oh, yes. Just a cut above, mm. right? Just a bit, mm. bit more class, just a bit brighter, <laughs> and not ashamed to assert that fact right up to the point where they were asked to leave by management. Um, <laughs> so the, the highlight of this TV special is where David Van Day does a solo spot <gasps> in which he steals Paul Nicholas's act. Ah, no, it's true. Not, He's got a bowler hat and a cane reggae, reggae, and a motley oh accent. God, really? Yeah, and he hoofs around the stage, giving it his little everything. Um, it's like a chart music lockdown anxiety dream. It's <laughs> just, oh, Christ. But it's as real as you and me. It's, I, I, I employ yeah, it's, you know, David VD yeah. copying the governor. It really happened. Yeah, it really did happen. Yeah. But also, yeah, so Dominic Grant married his old Judy Forsyth, and I would say. Right, okay, yes. well, listen, this is, this is where it goes. It turns out, right, that, yeah, 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 Bruce Forsyth's daughter, um, although I have to say, Bruce, he should have demanded a Jeremy Kyle-style DNA test here, mm. because <laughs> let's say there's not a huge family resemblance, mm. considering Bruce, he has a fairly distinctive face, right? Mm, yeah, well... Fortunately, for maybe he just had passive spunk. I don't know. You know, there's a <laughs> there's a clip of him also on YouTube joining them on Saturday night at the mill for a rendition of Love Train, right? In Fuck. which Bruce can't help but what make the, it... the OJ's Love Train. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, Bruce can't help but make it all about him and oh. openly tries to undermine their act mm. so he can get laughs, which no. may have been the final straw for Barry and Yvonne, who look <laughs> fucking furious mm. right, all <laughs> through it. Uh, while Dominic Grant, who knows what's good for him, just grins and bears yeah. it. Mm. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so she shacked up with Dominic Grant. Um, mm. So DVD and, and Bizarre were not the only couple in this band who mm. were like uh, basically the skimmed Fleetwood Mac and after <laughs> the group split up they continued as a duo called Grant and Forsyth uh, right. and they became household names in Holland mm. so YouTube also <laughs> offers countless clips of them uh, on Dutch TV um, with Dominic Grant now transformed into the European cheese mountain and, uh, you know, just living in soft focus. And uh, Julie Forsyth looking like a sort of square-faced German cowgirl. Do you know that look? <laughs> That's, yeah, and they're almost unreal. You know what I mean? It's very, mm. I was there for hours just inhaling it. Um, mm. <laughs> but I understand that... that that in these hurried times, every second is precious. So if you don't, if you just want the condensed version, um, you should watch the video for their song "Touch the Moon," which is like if someone tried to remake the theme and title sequence of "Home and Away" because the original was just too funky. Um, and uh, there's also a clip of them on a Dutch TV show, which appears to be called Karaoke Op Four. Um, but is just much less classy than that title <laughs> makes it sound, where they perform a, a line dance version of Dire Straits' Walk of Life. No, no. Out, outdoors on a damp evening in Groningen or some fucking place in front of some sour-faced 
deeply unimpressed Dutch youth who really <laughs> didn't come here for this. I don't know what they came there for, but it, it wasn't this. Fuck. And you just feel... It's like being... It's like drifting stranded in the cold, dead centre of the O in MOR. It's <laughs> a, a really chilling experience. But you follow the timeline, and finally you reach the triumph of Guys and Dolls 2008 reunion. Yes, the reunion, um, yeah. Oh, yes. Where, first of all, Dominic Grant rolls out his Scott Walker voice again, only to find that the moths have been at it. Oh. Um, which immediately suggests the tantalising possibility of him and Brucina tackling some of Scott's later material, right? And it's like a nice cowboy cabaret arrangement of uh, Clara, which I would pay to hear, but they never did. Oh. Of course. Um, it's also very noticeable that Forsyth has been promoted over the head of the dark-haired primary school teacher-looking doll, mm. right, who's obviously the lead singer in this clip. Um but despite being a worse singer, right? Just in case we're in any fucking doubt about who's holding the potatoes in this group, right? You know, you marry Dominic Grant. Well, mm. yeah, that's the way this band works with Griggs as a willing Smithers, by the way. <laughs> um, if you look at his website, he, he's uploaded loads of Grant and Forsyth clips to his website. Mm. He doesn't have to do that, but he knows what's good for him, right? But then. The moment we've all been waiting for, <laughs> yes, when Van Day and Bizarre rejoin the band <gasps> for want of anything better to do. And it's touching, except they're still stuck out on opposite <laughs> ends of the line. <laughs> That's right. You know, you can leave school, you can go on and do whatever you want, but if you're in the first form, you know. Once a minimus, always a minimus. But exactly. Yeah. And so they do a version of Love Train again, uh, minus Bruce, but in front of people eating chocolate. I don't, I don't speak Dutch, so I don't know what's going on. Mm. But it's, they are such pros that they don't look like they want to die immediately. <laughs> but, yeah, I've seen people have a better time. Mm. And that's, that's one thing mm. I did mm. in lockdown that wasn't finally reading all those books. <laughs> <laughs> and as ever, Taylor, you did it so that... Um... We don't have to. Well, <laughs> we might never do, but um, yes. Yeah, I went there and I brought back samples. <laughs> Good to see the cameraman getting involved in the audience, but with a really small camera, with, with practically what what constituted a handheld camera in 1975, which was just like just looked like a portable TV on a stand. Is that what it is? I think that's what it was. What else would it be? It looks much too small to be a BBC colour camera of the mid-70s. I know what you're talking right, about. It's like yeah. a silver box, right? With a, Yeah, what is that then? I don't know. It's got what looks like one of those um, cage things. You Like those sort of uh, domed cage type plastic things you see on the end of a drain pipe stuck on yeah. the top. Um, and a bloke in headphones behind it. I don't know what it is. It might be some sort of monitor or a an auto cue for this. I don't know. Maybe it's got the words on it for the singers, karaoke style. I don't know. I've never seen it before on any other Top of the Pops, and it was baffling me as well. So the following week, there's a whole lot of loving jumped up two places to number two, where it stayed for two weeks, held off the top by this week's number one. But two days later, the cat was out of the bag when the Daily Mirror reported that Claire Torrey and Kay Gardner had claimed it was them singing on the single. 
There's a whole lot of rowing going on over the current number four in the pulp charts, the article read. Last night, 31-year-old Kay, who claims that she was the lead singer, said, I am willing to have a voice print done if guys and dolls will do the same. (laughs) The follow-up, here I go again. Got to number 33 in May of this year, but they scored another hit when a cover of You Don't Have to Say You Love Me got to number 5 in March of 1976. However, when the next single, Stony Ground, only got to number 38 in November of 1976, David and Teresa Stewart Hargreaves started to kick off about the group's direction, and they were sacked in 1977. Now a four-piece, the group went back to basics when they nicked an OXO advert, changed the lyrics from Only OXO Does It to Only Loving Does It and put it out as a single. But it stalled at number 42 in May of 1978 and they never troubled the charts again. Despite supporting Frank Sinatra's week-long stint at the Royal Festival Hall in 1978, they were dropped by their label and eventually signed with EMI Holland. They took part in the 1979 Song for Europe competition that never happened due to industrial action, added Rosie out of Legs and Co to their lineup, hey. and became popular in Holland and Southeast Asia, finally calling it a day in 1985. Lead singer Dominic Grant is now a sculptor and did the bronze bust of his father-in-law, Bruce Forsyth, which currently stands in the Cinderella bar at the London Palladium. I bet he spent his own fucking life kissing ass to uh, to Bruce. <laughs> have you heard their other hit, the uh, their version of "You Don't Have to Say You Love Me"? Oh, long time ago. Dusty Shelbyville. <laughs> <laughs> Dolls are number four, and there's a whole lot of loving. I don't know if you ever watch BBC Two television at nine o'clock as I do. Fabulous show called The Goodies. Very funny. After what they did to me last week, I think they've got a bit of a cheek showing their faces in here, but I shall forgive them. They've got a record at number 23. It's called The Funky Given. Here they are. Come on, everybody. It's Given time. Tony, still atop the rostrum of solitude, shows a programme on BBC Two that he just happened to be in three nights ago. A fabulous show called The Goodies, and he introduces their latest single, The Funky Gibbon. We've already covered The Goodies and this single in chart music number six. And as Blackburn points out, this is their second TV appearance this week as the sixth episode of their fifth series, Scatty Safari, featuring Tony Blackburn being released from their star safari park and running through a field, was broadcast on BBC Two. 
This is the follow-up to the double-A side, the in-betweenies slash for the Christmas Do Not Touch Me, which got to number seven in December of 1974. It's already been featured on Top of the Pops a fortnight ago, which helped it enter the charts at number 37 last week, and this week it's rocketed 14 places to number 23. David, your forthcoming comedy book, do, mm. do the goodies feature? They will feature, yeah, but I don't think I'm exactly going to go to town on them. They were very strange. I mean, clearly, I remember the goodies very, very well indeed, and much as, like, you know, the pop of the day, you know, felt it was speaking directly to my 12-, 13-year-old soul, so were the goodies. But, like an awful lot of people, I mean, they disappeared completely from the culture. Mm. A bit like, you know, some others do add and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean... They, yeah, you mean they, they went to ITV? Yeah, <laughs> I suppose, you know, and... Same thing. They never be broadcast. The goodies themselves, you know, Graham Garden, they disowned them they just said look it was just crap um in its time obviously it was very very big indeed mm. but clearly you can see that they were the kind of the chipper to monty python's chopper as it, were. <laughs> it, it was um the sort of junior version i mean people i i i wasn't allowed to watch monty python it wasn't you know it was on too late it was a bit lewd there was all this kind of you know issues that meant i couldn't actually access monty python and so for like the likes of me the goodies was you know it was the next best thing although as far as we were concerned it was the best thing um, it's, I mean, clearly there mm. is, uh, you, know, you mentioned the safari episode, um, and it's got kind of, you know, min, min, guys dressed as black and white minstrels crawling about as monkeys. Um, you know, there was this kind of, you know, unfortunate yes. fixation with blackness, um, at a time when like Arlie and Frazier are like the kind of great, um, sort of warrior heroes of the era or whatever, slugging it out. And Arlie's the most famous person on the planet. They reflect that, mm. um, but in the Ecky Thumb episode by I think, having I think it's Graham Garden all blacked up and going Aluda. Well have you seen Tim Brooke Taylor's impersonation of Little Richard? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. And uh, well, yeah, let's not there's... forget uh Bill Oddie's lovable blacked up satirical anti racist character. it comes on and says, Hello Mon, I am mm. Rastus Watermelon. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. It's a time I know. times are funny thing. Different times. To be honest, I'm not at the stage of the book where I've really fully got my head around them because I think that um, it um, you know, requires a great deal of analysis. As for this single, I mean, I remember at the time, the funny thing about uh, Funky Gibbon is that when people parodied funk sometimes, they accidentally did some pretty good funk. Mm. I mean, this is actually a pretty funky track. Yes. You know, instrumentally and everything like that. You know, do, 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 you know I mean, it's, it's not bad. I remember that there was another thing that I remember hearing about. It was a Yorkshire man doing his Yorkshire funk thing called Barnsley Bill. Right. And it was a dreadful lyric about, if you go through the movements, you know, not like that. And if you twist your arm and says, I promise you, you'll look re-daft. And you're liable to pull a muscle and all, you know. But actually, the backing track to it was was marvellous. It was almost like the funk that David Bowie was dreaming of, but didn't quite get on fame. You know, it's funny how quite often people do these dreadful parodies and actually end up, you know, maybe it's the nature of funk that, you know. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's odd. And so it comes into that category, I suppose, for me. The other thing about this single is um, there's um, this great avant-garde British artist, Cornelius Cardew, yes. um, who works with Stockhausen. <laughs> yeah. and, um, um, uh, but eventually he kind of disavowed Stockhausen. He felt that the kind of the whole world of like sort of um, electronic avant-garde was too abstruse and elitist or whatever. And he wrote a tract called Stockhausen Serves Imperialism. <laughs> I don't think imperialism was aware of this at the time. They had a servant by the name of Karl Heinz. So, but anyway, so he decided that the, re, you know, as, as a kind of committed socialist and revolutionary as he was, he decided what he was going to do, he was going to write um, a 
kind of a sort of rough-hewn version of pop music, you know, songs that could be bashed out at working men's clubs up and down the land on sort of slightly out-of-tune pianos. And this what we're doing this. But one of the ones, the songs that um, he composed, you've actually mentioned the social contract earlier on, mm. when Tony Blackburn, remember the, um, you know, yeah. the, the, wrote to Michael Foote. Well, um, Cornelius Cardew wrote a track called Smash the Social Contract. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's probably ironic, whatever. And unfortunately, the chorus goes, smash, smash, smash the social contract. <laughs> social contract. <laughs> That's right. And it's like, oh, I think you might just have accidentally heard some pop music. Not that that's much evident in the rest of your version of pop music that you were trying to kind of paddle at the time. Um, so, yes, yes, there is that. But um, He had already bought his dungarees with a big C on the front. <laughs> the social contract needs to be smashed because it's a, a crutch for capitalism and a bulwark against revolution. Ah, okay. Yeah. Mm. Yes. So, take away the social contract, people get angry. Yes. Because they haven't got any money. Right. Yes. No, they, fair point. Yeah. No, no, fair point. Yeah. No, no. Yes, that's it. Yeah. So basically, what he's saying is starve, starve, starve the working classes. Well, working classes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's all work out for the best in the end. Don't you worry about that. Yeah. I mean, I love the goodies at the time. I mean, they, they, to me, they just leapt out of the pages of the Beano. Mm. There were comic strip characters brought to life. I fucking love this and I've still got residual love for the goodies. Mm. First few weeks of lockdown, I reached for comfort viewing just like a reach for comfort food. And I caned a couple of series of the goodies. Right. It, it was like, yeah, okay, so this is really out of date, but, you know, fucking hell, much rather that date than this date. Yeah. yeah. So the kids are well into this, though, aren't they? I mean, this is a, this is a repeat of their previous showing, mm. and it will be shown again a, a few three weeks later in the episode that we covered in Chart Music number 6. So they've got their gangster feminist dungarees on. And uh, having a fucking ball, man. I just look at this and all I can think is poor Timbo. Because mm. yeah. of all the fucking people, do you know what I mean? Of mm. all the 60 plus shitbags stomping mm. around, you know. Yeah. He's the one, well, he's not the one, but he is one who gets whacked by little fucking tiny bastard. Just one of the loveliest. Yeah, and, that fucking hurt that day. Yeah, the least mm. objectionable people in light entertainment, you know, by all accounts. And you yeah. look at him here with his Stephen Stills haircut, um, <laughs> committing mm. almost totally to something mm. which is making him look completely ridiculous, yeah. but keeping mm. just enough back that it's clear that he knows exactly what he's doing and he's aware of what's happening. Because the dynamic here is painfully obvious, right? Bill Oddie is away, lost mm. in his crazy wish fulfillment trip. Um, yeah. 100%. Randy Pandy lives. Oh, God. He is subsumed into the dream that this is somehow the same thing as being a pop star. And mm. the other two are indulging him and very conscious that mm. they're dancing clowns singing mm. a song for children, um, mm. which mm. is how they manage to remain cool, right? Even in the worst dungarees. And they do it all. They manage to remain above it without breaking that spell, right? Tim and also Graham, who's really my favourite. Like the Mike yeah, Nesmith. He's my favourite. He's too. the Mike Nesmith of the goodies, right? He's yes. got that same knack <laughs> of being able to behave absurdly while maintaining a basic dignity. And I don't yeah. want to, like anyone who's spent any time with me will have heard me bashing Bill Oddie. Right, yeah. it's, it's not a euphemism, um, <laughs> but I do feel from a bit because he looks like Kiki D with a beard in this. Does indeed, but 
as, as, as David says, he wasn't completely untalented musically, right? Or at least he had a basic understanding of funk that I suspect was rare in a Cambridge man of his generation. Um, yes. I mean, his songs aren't really very good, and his voice is horrendous, but he, what he could do was get a bunch of musicians together and churn out these not completely dreadful plastic funk tunes, right? Which mm. are, they're only really upper bracket 70s porno themes, or, uh, no, <laughs> what they really are is middle bracket 70s library music is what they sound mm. like, you know. Mm. But that's not too bad in the grand scheme. I mean, you listen to Funky it's not the stonk, you know. It's not no. Peter Kay singing, is this the way to Amarillo? It's got some... Certainly not. It. It's got mm. a bit of genuine movement underneath the vocals, and you wouldn't mistake it for for fucking funkadelic but it's it's vastly better than it has any need to be yeah. at all you know? i think that's musically it's definitely true although as a, as a small child uh obviously this record was around and i only ever sang the opening lines as we're the goodies how do you do we've just been out to the loo because no. my nan still had an outside toilet you see so um, that was where I pictured this happening. <laughs> Possibly on a special three-man toilet. <laughs> yes. Right, like yes. their stupid bike. It's not a trivial undertaking, especially in those dungarees. And Graham would have to take that whole suit thing off that he used to wear. <laughs> but look, talking about the goodies programme, right, people do often wonder, like especially the goodies out loud, why it's been repeated so rarely mm. since the 70s. But when, yeah, when you watch whole episodes now, this makes sense, right? And it's not just that it's shit, although quite a lot of it really isn't very good. It's more, I think, that the feel of the programme doesn't really fit with any modern perception of what makes acceptable television mm. or what constitutes 70s nostalgia. Yeah. Because it's basically a kid's show that isn't made for kids, mm. although mm. kids loved it, but it has that feel. And... Because of that, it's hard to figure out. Do you know what yeah. I mean? There isn't really anything like that now. And I don't think modern kids would connect with it the way my generation did because it's too old-fashioned. And mm. um, present-day adults feel a bit embarrassed by it, yeah. right? Like it's beneath them because it's all corny jokes and bad puns and loads of slapstick and mm. people falling over and stuff. I mean, very over-the-top performances and bits cribbed out of Looney Tunes cartoons. And, yeah. You know... These days, people demand a certain degree of cynicism in their comedy, mm. you know, or at least a world-weary smugness, which the good is absolutely does not provide. No. It's a, mm. like a big, lumbering man-baby of a programme. And, mm. you know, all the clever bits, which are there, do get lost in all of that, you know. Mm. Um, but, of course, that disorientating mixture of the childish and the adult was absolutely what appealed to me as a kid. Yeah. At mm. the time, and to most of my friends, so it was perfect for me, yeah, you know, or perfect, you know, up to twelve, thirteen, definitely, absolutely yeah. perfect. So, I mean, I don't watch a lot of goodies now. You know, I get a lot more pleasure now from. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Like the aging fop I am, <laughs> right? but I can't put them down because they did so much for me when I was like yeah. six or seven or eight. Right? Yeah, it was like they were similar to the monkeys in the sense of providing encouragement to kids, yeah. that you could live in the big world without being entirely straight and narrow, yeah. right? But what made it weirder was that the monkeys were still about the near future. It was like the, the young adult dream, you know, 
of living a colourful and unpredictable life, mm. you know, and, and mm. being free and still being cool. Whereas the goodies weren't cool. They were like, they were something much stranger than that. It was like these, these posh, balding men in their 30s who looked like teachers. Yeah. Like chemistry, uh, maths and sociology, respectively. <laughs> um, but behaving like idiots and creating this world where chaos was the only constant. Right. This was the fascinating thing because you'd watch the goodies and you never knew where you were because their personalities would flip all the time. Yeah. Right? Like in practically every episode, one of them goes mad and becomes mm. like a, a Nazi. Yes. Or a, yes, there's one, a, of those, yeah, one of them thinks that Tim Brooktelly turns into a dictator in one of them, doesn't he? Yeah. So we talked down by Graham Garden. Yeah. yeah, or Graham becomes a mad scientist or Bill becomes mm. a crazed animal killer. And mm. the others have to sort them out. You know, and you never knew which one it was going to be. Mm. Right? Yeah. And any present-day reality in which the programme was set would be, you know, distorted and stretched to, mm. to breaking point all the time. Yeah. Um, so it, it did for young minds what surrealism is meant to do for adult minds. It showed you that there is no arbitrary cut-off point, you know, and, uh, and also that people old enough to be your dad could be in on the cosmic joke. Mm. that was really something that was really something and also you know when you're laughing so hard that you can't breathe and your mm. face goes purple and you think you're going to die and mm. you think you're going to be like that bloke watching the plant actually did yeah watching Ecky Thump yeah. yeah and you have to make yourself think of something miserable just to stop laughing for half a second so you can get a lung full of air right now this happens with decreasing frequency yeah. as you get older but I know that the goodies had that effect on me mm. at least five or six times mm. yeah. as a child and probably the first thing that ever did and it wasn't just by doing dumb shit it was by stretching my conception of reality and allowing me to think and laugh freely right and that feeling of simultaneous enlightenment and escape had a lasting effect it it, mm. it pointed me if nothing else towards the understanding that laughter can provide a sort of protection against the gathering darkness and a and a stubborn refusal to take everything too seriously mm. might be the closest thing to freedom that you can ever find so i'm not going to sit here and say bad things about the goodies no. because in a sense they are the people who first taught me how to survive the adult world and i suppose you can't pay much higher tribute to a dead bloke you never met whose most celebrated work you never watch because it's not on youtube and it's not good enough to justify splashing out on the dvds the goodies was one of the few comedy shows that examined the world of pop and acknowledged the existence of pop yeah i mean there were, I, I, off the top of my head i can think of a four episodes that were devoted to it. You know, one one where Tim Brooke Taylor becomes a disco dancer. Yeah. There was the punk episode, which was fucking brilliant at the time because it had Michael Barrett of Nationwide saying, fuck off, where <laughs> it is the fucking news. <laughs> oh, obviously bleeped out. Yeah, yeah. But that was that was insane watching that. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's the best episode, I think. I think that's the best one they ever did. Mm. That and the one with the uh, uh, Watership Down parody with uh, the da- yes. David Bellamy... <laughs> Getting shot yes. with a blunderbuss. I can't. Yeah, I, I, I just, maybe I should splash out on the DVDs. Yeah, I, fuck I, it. Yeah. No, I'm gonna have to. It's yeah. that or two bottles of scotch. It does my head in sometimes when I hear people go, "Oh, you mm. wouldn't be able to show that today." And it's like people who created comedy in the seventies weren't sitting around going, "Well, how is this gonna play 
in 50 years' time. In 2020. Yeah, no, of course. No, that's the way yeah. a lot of... You know, this is it. It's, it's like with musicians and a lot of things. You know, you're really only speaking to your own mm. times, you know. And um, hopefully, if, you, if you're if you speaking to at least your own times, at least you're not speaking to 20 or 30 years before, mm. you know, like some things that are even more retrograde. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And also, with, with comedy, you're always operating on the edge, right? On the edge of what's... Success- or you should be mm. operating on the edge of what's... And you don't know which way the plate is going to shift over time, right? Mm. So you're on the edge while you're doing it, but 30 years later, you that might have shunted you so far inland that now you look completely middle of the road or if the plate went in the other direction now what you were doing is completely unacceptable yeah. you know but at the end of the day i mean it's like fucking old timber you realize timber wasn't really a tory mm. it was just it was just his character mm. he wasn't actually a right-wing mm. maniac they were all very nice yeah, yeah. uh very nice gentlemen yeah. very, you know very very thoughtful and uh socially yeah. uh Concerned. Yeah. So at this time, this would have been my favourite band on this episode of Top of the Pops. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Bless them. So the following week, the Funky Gibbon soared 15 places to number eight, then dropped to number 10, but went back up to number four, its highest position. Four days after this episode came out, the next episode of The Goodies, Kung Fu Capers was aired and five days after that in the Daily Mirror came this headline A Jolly Husband Laughs Himself to Death Jolly Alex Mitchell just couldn't stop laughing at his favourite TV show He was in hysterics as the goodies staged a fight between a black pudding and a set of bagpipes and even after the programme ended he carried on roaring with laughter but the excitement proved too much for 50-year-old Alex. With his wife Nessie helplessly looking on, he suddenly clutched his chest and slumped back in his chair. And minutes later, he was dead, killed by heart failure, by too much laughing. Nessie has now written to the goodies, thanking them for the enjoyment they gave her husband. And last night, producer Jim Franklin said, the goodies feel extremely sorry that this has happened. Just get a picture of his widow on a round-the-world cruise, just raising a champagne glass to the goodies. (laughs) (laughs) Also, is the word jolly there being used in its old-fashioned sense as a euphemism for 30 stone? Mm. (laughs) Yes, I suspect. I was wondering if there might be underlying health issues i think if so that would make a lot of sense i imagine that the yeah i mean it's it's a perhaps it's the thing that might almost weigh in your conscience as a scriptwriter, i suppose you know the goodies that this is you know that actually laughed a man to death you know i don't imagine the scriptwriters of maureen Littman's agony perhaps no (laughs) (laughs) the follow-up black pudding bertha would only get to number 19 in july and they'd have two more top 30 hits in 1975 with their cover of wild thing which got to number 21 for two weeks in october and make a daft noise for christmas which got to number 20 in december 1975 very much the year of the goodies in the pop world all right and pop plays youngsters we're going to leave it there for now because rest assured there's a whole lot of top of the pops going on in this episode so on behalf of taylor parks and david stubbs come and join us tomorrow for the next part of this episode but until then stay pop crazed (laughs) 
Sharp music. Oh, hello you. My name's Tom Price. Hello, I'm Dave Cribb. You should come and join us every day. We do a podcast called Cabin Fever, where we talk to loads of comedians who've had to cancel everything else in their lives. So they come on our podcast instead, don't they, Dave? Yeah, it's an isolation podcast. Uh, it's Dave, were you yawning the at the start of that sentence then? Was it just a little yawn? Yeah, it's basically the Great Big Owl isolation podcast. We'll have people on from all our podcasts, from your Ruler Threes, your Brian and Rogers, your musicals, your Bitchins. If you like any of our podcasts, if you like any of those people, chances are they'll be logging onto the Zoom call and just chatting because, let's face it, they've got nothing else to do. Also, there'll be a quiz on the bill. All right, see you soon. Lots of love. Cabin F-E-A-3709. Oh, 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 that's our Twitter name. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.